Thanks for joining us this week for the Church at Starkey Hills podcast. Be sure to visit our website at starkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Well, good morning. Good to see everybody today. So glad you are here. And uh, hopefully you've received one of these. It's a partnership guide. Uh, We want to answer all the questions before you have to ask them. It's our, it's our goal to be transparent as church leadership, as a, as a church body, who we are. We just want to know who we are, why we are that way biblically, and that's our goal. So if you haven't received one of these, please uh, stop by our greeters area and pick up one of these. It'll help you as you want to learn more about this church that you're a part of, and also as you invite your friends and they ask you questions about our church, you'll have answers. It's kind of funny. I even get questions. I, just this week, yesterday, uh, I took Kendra up to uh, Pigeon Forge. Uh, that's always a blessing, and uh, went to Tanger Outlet, and I have a simple, simple goal there. Uh, she goes in, and I guard the fort on the outside. You know, no strange intruders going in. I sit on the bench and guard the fort. And so I'm guarding the fort, and there's a lady that sat down b- beside me, and I just said some kind words to her, and she started talking. She's 85 years old or so, and her name was Margaret, and she's talking about her husband dying, yeah, yeah, and, and I asked her if she was a believer and having a conversation, and she was. She was a devoted Christian. It was cool. And uh, she said, are you? I said, yeah, I'm a pastor of a church. And she said, oh, really? Where's your church? I said, North Knoxville. And she said, uh, was it a big church or a small church? I said, well, it's an in-between church. And she said, what's an in-between church? I said, well, eight years ago there were 50 people. Today there's five or 600, so we're an in-between church. And she said, no, that's a big church. We'll have this conversations. People ask. And people ask you if you're willing to have conversations. They want to know about this thing called the church. And they want to know that God is real. And some of them may have known it or experienced it in the past, but they just need a fresh encounter with God. And you can be that corridor. You can be the one that opens the door to that in the life that's struggling. Also, I had an uh, individual talk to me this week on the phone, and he said, so is your church pastor-led or elder-led? I said, well, yes, it is. And, and he said, well, which one is it? I said, it's both and. And he said, how's that work? I said, biblically. And he said, what do you mean? I said, elder and a pastor and a bishop and a, a shepherd and a leader. They're all the same word, interchangeable Greek words. I didn't know that. <laughs> Neither do most people. But it is. And so these questions come up. Maybe they just come up to me because I'm weird about the church because I'm madly in love with the Lord and his church. But it it will come up in your life, especially as we enter into the holidays. There's opportunities to talk about it. So DNA, it's who we are. That your DNA personally defines who you are, how you're put together, what you act like, what you look like, what you smell like. I mean, it's just, it's in your DNA. It defines you. And DNA for the church is important because it defines us. And we need to know what our DNA is. It's really important that our DNA, the structure of who we are, is, finds itself uh, in its origin in the Word of God. Not in some pop culture identity or philosophy, but in the Word of God. Now we talked about it, that God is amazing in His inspired, holy, infallible, inerrant, eternal Word. That He tells us everything we need to know. He doesn't tell us everything there is to know because there's not that much ink or paper. But he tells us everything we need to know. Uh, For us as individuals to live as Jesus followers in a dark world, and for us corporately as a church to be uh, the place of refuge for believers to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. He tells us everything we need need to know. And then at the same time, he allows some level of ambiguity or room to move, to breathe, to stretch, to meet our culture where it is. And so it's important that we get that because when we start writing our own 
uh, script. When we start defining ourselves based on our own ideas, it looks like a mess. And that's what we've done in our world. We have tried to rewrite truth. We see it in our culture through immorality, sexual confusion, fatherless children, refusal to take responsibility for personal decisions, and a loss of respect for leadership. Does that not define our culture? Sure it does. And it's because we've tried to redefine truth. We see it in our marriages through, uh, by redefining what biblical marriage is, confusion about the roles and the rules of relationship, and the reality is failed marriages. We see it in the churches through the decline of faithfulness and the loss of generations and abuse of power by the pastors and a loss of the power and impact of the church on the world because we've re tried to redefine truth. And all of it is the result of just abandoning what God has simply told us. This is what's amazing about God's word. God did not write a physics manual. He did not write a rocket ship manual. He wrote a life guide for dummies, right? And that's who we are. And he made it very simple. But we try to complicate it so much, and, 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 and the end result is failure. So we need to get back to the basics. So last week, we were talking about DNA. We've covered some things about the church. Now we're into the structure of the church. And we talked about pastors last week. And I would encourage you to listen to the last few weeks about DNA. It'll help you know your church. So we talked about pastors, which is leadership in the church. And as I just said, there's multiple words that kind of interchange and mean the same thing, and it's the leadership of the church. Now, we were, were reminded last week that, first of all, the pastor is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He nailed that spot. He's held it for 2,000 years. It was not voted on. It's just his job. He's the head. And so you begin to see this structure, like Jesus is the head of the church, and then he calls some pastors, elders, bishops, teachers, shepherds, leaders. He calls them to be under, to get their marching orders from Jesus, and then, and then he begins to put the church together. And, and so the pastor is not the head, that's Jesus' job, nor is the pastor the priest. We talked about that. That's you. If you're a believer, you are a priest, a minister, a holy nation. We saw that in Scripture. We saw that the pastor does not hold all of the power in the church. The church body ultimately holds the power. I showed you in our bylaws, you can vote me out and vote somebody else in. I don't want you to. We won't be friends, but you can Okay, And we talked about that last week. The pastor doesn't make all the decisions. Our church is full of leadership. We've got ministries and teams all throughout our church. And, and they have leaders within them. And they make the decisions based on their constituency of people that they minister to and some budgetary guidelines. All I do, all the pastors do is kind of oversee that. And so we don't make all of the decisions. And so we begin to understand that the pastor sometimes is not what we thought he was supposed to be. We looked at the qualifications from uh, 2 Timothy 3, the qualifications for the pastor. We unpacked those. Well, today we're going to move to the only other authorized, ordained position in the church. The only one. The first is the pastor and the second is the deacon. And so we're going to move from leadership in the church to servantship in the church. 
And we're talking about deacons. Now, let me be very clear. I, I, I love deacons, man. When they are biblical, it's amazing. They provide support and encouragement to the pastor, and ours do. They are a team of people who serve and meet needs in the church, and they do. They have wives who are, who are also doing ministry with them, alongside them serving. And so it's biblical, and it's amazing. It's amazing when we do things God's way, what happens. But at the same time, I want to uncover a misconception that just like I uncovered about pastors. The misconception about deacons is this. The deacons run the church. That's a lie. Some have tried. Some may have succeeded. But biblically, that's not their job. They are not called to run the church. And often in the church, maybe you've experienced a church where there was a battle between the deacons and the pastor. If you've ever experienced that, just raise your hand. Anybody? Yeah, we have. Okay, maybe you're one of those. Okay, you're in the wrong place. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We've tried that. It doesn't work. When we change our philosophy and our understanding of Scripture and rewrite the truth, everything falls apart and it becomes a mess. And that's what churches have often looked like. Often, deacons have uh, 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 embraced this wrong idea. They've become a board of directors rather than a brotherhood of servants. You see, deacons are servants. That's what they are. And we're going to talk about that today. And I want you to know, just right out of the chute. The word servant is not a four-letter word. It's not a dirty word. It's not a bad word. Servant is a good word. And serving is not a bad thing. It is a great action. I will go on record and show you in Scripture that you and I are never more like Jesus Christ than when we are serving somebody else. You see, that? that's not popular. That's not sexy. You see, we live in a world that's consumeristic. We roll into the sandwich shop. We order it just like we want it. We tell them what we want on it, what we don't want on it. We pull up and we get whatever they put in the bag and we leave. Okay? But we ask them, we tell them, we command that our needs be met. We, we do it everywhere. We sit in front of our television and we demand it shows us something to good and something shows us something good and there's a hundred channels of nothingness and a bunch of junk movies, and, but we're, we, we want it our way. And so what we do is we have that consumeristic mentality and then we bring it to church. And we bring it to church and it looks like this. I got 10 boxes that I need checked. I need a good parking spot. I want them to be friendly when I come in. I want it to be safe and secure and wonderful for my kids. I want to sit in a good, warm, uh, comfortable seat in a good, cool climate. I want the music to be great and the songs I like, but I don't want them too loud. And I want the preacher to preach less than 30 minutes. I want him to be funny. I want him to be uh, biblical. I want him to be right. I want him to be engaging. And then when I leave, I don't want him to make me want to give any money. And I'm going to leave and get in my car and go home. And I want to beat the Methodist to the, uh, to the restaurant. And as long as the church checks those 10 boxes, I love me some church. But you get nine out of the 10, I'm walking. I am walking, I'm going to another church, okay? And so we gotta be careful with that because that's not what the church is. It never was intended to be that. So are you really never more like Jesus than when you're serving somebody else? Well, let's look at it. Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. This is Jesus, he's talking. 
And he says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Now, that's pretty clear. He goes on, he says, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. He kind of doubles down. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came from the glory of heaven to this earth to serve somebody, and that somebody is you. And now he says, I want to save you, make you right with God, be with you forever, and call you my own. But I want you to know the truth. You are saved to serve. Tell the person next to you, you're saved to serve. And so it's important that you find your place of service. Well, one of those areas is, is occasionally that people are set apart, nominated, called to be deacons in the church. And just like Jesus, when he was here, he fed hungry people, <clears throat> he visited the sick, he loved the hurting, he washed the feet of people who followed him, he showed the world how to live fully and freely while serving the needs of others. So what is a deacon? A deacon is somebody who is set apart by the church to serve the needs of the church. And what do they do? They do what Jesus did. It's just about that easy. See, it's not rocket science. God made it very simple for us. So what is the nature of a deacon? If we're going to have deacons in the church, what should be, or if we're going to nominate deacons in the church, what should be the nature of that individual? The first I want you to know is a deacon should have a heart for ministry. You see, the Greek words diakoneo, diakonos, those are all derivatives of the same word, and it simply means ministry or serving. Ministry or serving. So they should all automatically have a heart for that. They should desire to do that. And, and, and you see people like that, that it's just, I mean, we're cleaning up garbage over here and this person's excited about hauling off trash. We're, we're, we're cleaning up a mess over here and they seem to be happy cleaning up a mess. Uh, we're directing people in this thing or that thing and they seem to be happy and content serving somebody else's needs. That's what it looks like. And so a deacon is a person who demonstrates a dependable commitment to the Lord's church, a, 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 a dependable care for the pastors of the church. They're not taught to serve. They, they are gifted to serve. They have the gift of helping. They just want to help people. And so these people begin to surface. Secondly, I want you to see that a deacon should have a sense of urgency. Now, this, by definition, diakoneo means thoroughly, uh, to thoroughly raise up dust by moving in a hurry and so to minister. A sense of urgency. Uh, they should be just, just driven to help and meet needs. I was, I was thinking about this. I was ordained as a deacon uh, about 33 years ago, before I was ordained to be a pastor. And God had sent Kendra and I to a large church in Chattanooga, a mega church. And we were small church people. We ended up in this mega church and I had an encounter with God and I was just in the game. I was on Team Jesus, wherever you want to use me, I'm in. And so I was just whatever the opportunity, man. I was visiting. I was, well, they wanted me to be a deacon. Okay. They nominated me to be a deacon. And I know they probably, this sense of urgency, I know they probably thought I was snorting cocaine before I came to church. Because I would hit the ground running every day. I mean, I love Jesus. I love the church. I love my family. I was glad that God chose to, to, to forgive me and let me start all over again and, and, and to use me. I was excited about it. And something happens when we serve the needs of other people. I want you to know today that although there is a position ordained in Scripture uh, where men are set apart to be deacons for the church, ambassadors of Jesus before God and the world, 
Every, every single person who's born again is a deacon. You see, that word also means to simply be a servant or a minister. And so you should serve. And I want you to know what happens. Whether you serve as a deacon, whether you serve as just a, a Christian who serves other people, something miraculously happens when you begin to desire to meet other people's needs as much or more than you desire to meet your own. You see, isn't that the great commandment? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love everybody else like that as much as you love yourself. It's hard. It's not our flesh nature. But when we dive into that, when we get it, God honors it and he blesses it. Next, I want you to see a deacon should have an attitude of humility. An attitude of humility. Pride and service do not go hand in hand. You can never be prideful and wash somebody's feet. You know what I'm saying? You, you can never be prideful and, and, and desire to meet somebody else's needs more than your own because pride uh, brings with it selfishness. Humility brings with it selflessness. And, and so to be a servant, we begin to consider other people as more important than ourselves. And so for the deacon, they surrender, there's surrender of self. There is support to the past, pastor and there is service to the body. It's what Jesus did and does for the church. He surrendered himself. He gives support as the head to the pastor. And he serves the body by saving those who are part of it. Amazing. And that's what scripture, this is how scripture begins to lay it out. Next I want you to see from scripture uh, that a deacon should have a commitment to harmony. Harmony. You could use the word unity. But there's, they're peacemakers and peace seekers. And we see this in Acts chapter 6 where deacons where they were birthed, where this whole thing came from. Now, listen to how this thing plays out. Acts chapter 6, beginning of verse 1. It says, now in those days when the disciples were growing in number. That means the church was growing. The disciples, not the 12. They've already been established. Now they're apostles. When, when the disciples, the church body began to grow. This is about uh, probably uh, uh, 40 AD, somewhere, it's early first century, okay? Jesus has ascended, the church has been birthed at Pentecost, and now it's growing, okay? It says, and they begin to grow, and a complaint arose. Now, there's Paul's right there. Don't you think that's kind of funny that somebody would complain in the church? 2,000 years ago, they're complaining in the church. We have, aren't you glad we have moved beyond that? You know what I'm saying? Something's never changed, man. 2,000 years later, complaints arise in the church, now, I'm, I, I'll go on record saying this. This is the least complaining church I've ever been a part of. And maybe you're just afraid to mention it to me. Maybe all of y'all are swarming like bees, man. Y'all texting each other, complaining stuff. I don't really care as long as you keep it yourself. I just don't want to know about it. Okay, I don't want to know about it. My life is good. Okay, I enjoy what I do. I'm glad to be the pastor. Don't mess up my world. You know what I'm saying? The truth is we don't complain much. Okay, because we, we realize that's not who we are, not who we're supposed to be. In fact, if you're a complainer, repent. That's it. That's, that's it. So in the church, what do we do when, when a complaint arises? Okay, we're going to learn right here. It says a complaint arose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews against the native Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, this is a legitimate problem. You see, in those days, if you were a widow, you didn't get a check from the government. You didn't get a, a check from a retirement from your husband. If you're a widow, you're on your own to fend for yourself. And maybe you had children who would help you, 
But the church would often come alongside these widows and provide for them and meet their needs. They had, it was a basket is what it was called, of funds that the deacons were responsible for, excuse me, that the church was responsible for to meet the needs of widows. And so in this church, it's growing so much. Now there's this group of widows over here and they're not getting their stuff. I mean, they're left out. It's a legitimate problem. But it, rather than being a problem that the church just said, okay, let's fix this problem. Let's resolve the situation. They begin to complain. And so the complaint is heard. Now, verse 2, what do we do? What do the early church do? It says, so the 12, this is the, the apostles, it says they called the whole group of disciples together. They said, hey, church, let's, get, let's rally up. We got a problem. We got a complaint. We got a need that needs to be met. And it says, so they called the whole group together and they said, it is not right for us to neglect the word of God to wait on tables. Now, if we stopped right there, you say, well, that's a little prideful, a little pious. Oh, the pastor shouldn't wait on tables. Who's he think he is? That's not it at all. He just knows, the pastor knows, as we talked about last week. He has his responsibility before God, according to scripture, and others have their responsibility. So what do they do? He goes on in verse 3, it says, carefully select among you, brothers, seven men who are well attested, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this necessary task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So you see the church is growing, and when the church is growing, problems arrive. You know why? Are you ready? This church has problems. Let me just go ahead and tell you. Maybe you're a charter member. Maybe you're a brand new guest today. This church got some problems. And as long as this church is growing, it will continue to have problems. How do I know that? Because the church is the bride and the body of Jesus Christ. And you and I are part of it. And the enemy hates the bride and the body of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus took you from his forever camp his forever destiny in hell and rescued you, called you his own and placed you on a new trajectory heading to heaven to be with him forever. And the devil hates God. He hates Jesus. He hates you individually and he hates us corporately as a church. But you know what? In the end, we're on team Jesus. You know what that means? We win. We win. One and oh. Okay, he may win some battles along the way. He will never win the war. That's good news. We're part of team Jesus. And, and so he hates the church, so it's going to have problems. And as long as the church is growing, he'll continue to hate us more. So I say we just continue to grow more so he'll hate us more so God will do bigger things defeating that same enemy. Amen? That's what we want to do. Now, the complaint we see that it's a big deal. They, they take the needs seriously and they assign these men to meet the needs of these uh, widows who have not gotten their needs met through provision of food and resources. And so I want you to know now, so that's what a deacon looks like. That's the origin. That's, what, that's, that's where it comes from. That's what they're kind of supposed to do. Now, how do we pick them? How do we know who they are? Okay. Do you have a, you just say, hey, anybody here want to be a deacon? Raise your hand. Oh, you could, and that's what churches have done. In some churches, it's become a popularity contest. The old Jimmy over there, he knows a lot of people. He comes here about half the time. I think I'm going to put his name down, okay? Well, that's fine if that's what you want. It's not biblical. And we're trying to be a church that's structured according to Scripture. And so I want you to know that a deacon's life should be a life on display. In other words, 
It shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be like this. You know, we say at funerals sometimes, live your life so the preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral, you know? And if you're a pastor, you know, when somebody says, hey, let me introduce you to Joel. This is our pastor. They shouldn't say, he's a pastor, you know? If you're a deacon, hey, this is Jimmy. He's a deacon, you know? He's a deacon? It shouldn't be that. You know, and so uh, their life, just like the pastor, should be on display. It should be uh, homogenous, the same all the time. And, and so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, just like in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we saw the qualifications for a pastor, now we're going to see the qualifications for a deacon. So check this out. He says, verse 8, deacons likewise, like the pastors, must be dignified. In other words, respectable, honorable. Then it says they should not be two-faced. The Greek word is di, uh, dialogos, dialogos. It means double-tongued, okay? You remember in, in the early church there was a complaint. In other words, the deacon, should, he, he should be a peacemaker. Not, he shouldn't be the complainer, you know? In fact, it, in, at the end, I'm going to introduce our deacons. If, if you know them to be complainers, just rat them out. Call the pastor and say, hey, he's a complainer. But we don't complain. We're not going to complain on each other. We're going to help each other, okay? And, and so he says, uh, next it says, not given to excessive drinking. The word is polis in the Greek. And let me address this. I addressed it last week. But if you weren't here, I talked about the pastors and our position about alcohol. I'll tell you the position about our, uh, the church's position about alcohol regarding deacons. He says here, not to be given too much wine. What does that mean? Okay, it means to not be given too much wine. It means to not be enticed, intrigued in love with alcohol, okay? That's what Scripture says. I've been in, in ministry, for, I've been in the church for uh, 60 years and 10 months. I had my 60th birthday in July. I was going to church nine months before I got here. So I've been in church my whole life since conception, okay? And I praise the Lord for parents who did that, okay? And before I ever got in ministry, alcohol was always a problem. But I'm telling you, in 2022, in, this, in the culture we live in, it's a problem. I will go on record as saying this. I, have, I had a lot of counseling. So does Tim. He's our primary counselor. We have marriages in trouble. A lot of marriages in trouble. If your marriage is in trouble, get some counseling. Get some help. Don't be embarrassed by that. Quite honestly, the marriages behind you, in front of you, they have troubles too. We're all, if we have troubles in our marriages, just say amen. <laughs> if, we ha if you've ever had trouble in your marriage, just say Amen. Okay, half of you told the truth. It's good. Now, so, so in, in this marriage counseling, the, the, the number one problem is not gambling. That's a problem. I've had that problem more than one time. The problem is not pornography. It is a problem, not the number one problem. The problem is not adultery. That's a problem, not the number one problem. The problem is not physical abuse. That's a problem, not the number one problem. The problem is not laziness. He's not willing to work. She's not doing her part. That's a problem, not the number one problem. You ready? The number one problem, hands down, bar none, the most common, the number one common denominator, alcohol, okay? And so as a church, we want to lead, as a pastor and shepherd, I want to lead the church down the road of least trouble. And the least uh, trouble includes no alcohol. Now, that being said, I'll encourage all of you. I do, I do not hide from this. I am not bashful about this. It is my will, my goal, my prayer that everybody in here abstains from alcohol. Why? Because I'm judging you if you do? Because it's a sin if you drink one drink of alcohol? No, because I know the trouble that it causes. And as shepherd of the church, I don't want your life to be worse. I want your life to be better. 
And any of you, all of you can look around and you see that what I'm saying is real. Alcohol is a problem in our culture. It's the number one drug. And so we take a stand on it. And some would say we set the bar higher than scripture itself. And we do. But you remember I said there's ambiguity. As long as we don't set the bar lower than scripture, I don't think we have a problem setting it higher. Not only that, I can show you biblically why it is such a problem. And so we believe, we tell our leadership, our pastors, our deacons, our worship team, our small group leaders, our ministry leaders, we ask them to abstain from alcohol as long as they are a part of that particular ministry leadership, okay? Now, why do we do that? For me, it's because I'm the shepherd and I don't want, to, I don't want you to mess up. And, and I want you to know your children and your grandchildren will never battle alcohol abuse because the preacher told them that it was okay. I don't think it's okay. I, I hate it, okay? I hate it. And so I want to be very clear about that. I want to help your family and never to hurt it. For, so for the other leadership positions, this is how we build our position regarding this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says, Be careful that this liberty of yours does not become a hindrance to the weak. For if someone weak sees you who possess knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience be strengthened to eat food offered to idols? So by your knowledge, the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed. If you sin against your brothers or sisters in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. For this reason, if food causes my brother or sister to sin, I will never eat meat again so that I may not cause one of them to sin. Our goal as leaders in the church is to not be a stumbling block for a brother or a sister in our church family. Does that make sense? If it does, say yes. Okay. Now, back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So now we're going to get into, in just a second, another somewhat controversial subject. It says now, he says, not greedy for gain. Okay, in other words, to be generous, to be a giver and not a hoarder. In verse 9, he says, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. James would say, be a doer of the word and not simply a hearer of the word. In other words, he hears the word and his life demonstrates that the word of God is alive in his life. And then it goes on in verse 10. And it says, and these also must be tested first. Just lost my place right there. These also must be tested first. Where are we at? Here we go. Must be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they are found blameless. In other words, a guy did one day, you know, he's, he's lost and he's hell bound. He's living like the devil. He meets Jesus. He's born again. He's saved. And he says, yeah, I think I should be a deacon. It doesn't work that way. He should be proven, tested. His life over a, a longer period of time should reveal that his heart is right with God and it's demonstrated and manifested through his actions on the outside. Now, we're going to get a curveball, okay? He says in verse 11, likewise also their wives must be dignified, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in every respect you say what's controversial about that well in some churches they ordain women to be deacons and women to be pastors and I don't judge them every leadership team in a church gets to answer to judge Jesus for how they handled scripture and how they shepherded a flock okay and so we hold to a traditional view that when it says a pastor should be a man that it should be a man 
Now, we hold, too, that when, when Scripture says uh, a deacon should be a man, it should be a man. Now, how do we get to that place? Okay, right here it is. And how does somebody else get to a place otherwise? Here it is. That phrase in the Greek, likewise also their wives, can be interpreted, legitimately can be interpreted, likewise also the women must be dignified. So some churches of a more moderate to liberal progressive vein would say, okay, what that means is now we have a new category. In 1 Timothy, we got pastors, we've got deacons, and now we've got women deacons, deaconesses. And you say, well, that's stretching it, isn't it? It could be. But then you go over and you read the book of Romans, I think it's chapter 12, and you read about a woman whose name is Phoebe, who is a deacon. And you say, well, okay, there it is. Let's ordain us some women to be deacons. And churches do that. But when you begin to unpack it, you find out this. In Romans, when it says Phoebe was a deacon, the Greek word is the same word, diakoneo. She was a servant and a minister. Now, this is good. You know what that means? Everybody who's born again should be a diakoneo. Everybody who's born again should be at some level of deacon because we're all saved to serve. No matter male or female, adult or child, if you're born again, you're saved to serve. And so, so how do we then go back and say, well, all right, we're choosing the interpretation, which is legitimate Greek interpretation. We're choosing the interpretation that says likewise wives, not just random women in a new category. Why do we choose to do it that way? Okay, because we put it in context. In context, Paul has written a description of qualifications for the pastors, and he did not include their wives. Why? Because in Scripture... Although women and men can be servants, women and men are not supposed to be pastors. The truth is, women are not supposed to teach men in the church. Now, we don't, you know, we don't make a big deal out of that. And quite honestly, there's people like Beth Moore, which most of us, are, I like Beth Moore. I think she teaches a lot of good stuff. Should she be teaching churches of men and women? She's probably not going to here but she could other places. I don't judge that. It's not a problem for me. But we hold to a traditional view, which is biblical, that men are to be pastors. And he didn't include their wives because their wives are not supposed to come beside them and also be pastors. We joke about it because when I said elders, elders, pastors, bishops, and shepherds are all the same word, and you know, somebody asked me, so are we going to put a sign down at the road that says, uh, Bishop Joel and and Bishop Bishop Joel and Kendra do you know pastors plural Joel and Ken no you know we're not okay now I want you to be very very clear sometimes in our culture women get frustrated if a guy says something like that if a preacher says something like that some of you ladies got your underwear bunched up right there on that one okay just saying you tore up just toe up from the flow up I don't see I'm not coming back here listen I want you to know something. If you feel that way, I want you to know you missed the point of the message. Are you ready? If it were not for women in the Lord's church, the church would not be the church it is today. If it were not for women in the early church, the church would not be what the church was then. 
If it were not for women filling roles that often men were supposed to fill, the church would have missed the opportunity to survive and thrive as it has in the past. I want you to know, how can I say that women are equal to men without, without reservation? Because listen, the number one, bar none, greatest ambassador to the rights and the equality of women was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ emphasized the value of women in a culture that played women down below livestock. Jesus is your ambassador and this church is the ambassador. We, we believe in equality, men and women. But scripture assigns positions in the church and he gives qualifications for whatever reason he chose to call men. Now, how do we know that this right here is not talking about when he says, likewise also, how do we know it's not talking about women being deaconesses? Because now it goes on. You keep reading in context. Verse 11 says, um, likewise you also their wives must be dignified not slanderous temperate faithful and, and, uh, and in every respect now verse 12 deacons must be husbands of one wife well now how are we going to nail that one down now I know it's easier today in this culture than it ever has been before to make a husband a wife I mean to make a wife a husband or a woman a husband whatever you want however you want to say it. we live in a culture we could make this work you know what I'm saying because it's confused, but, but it's not biblically true, and it's not biblically accurate. And so he says to be, the deacons should be the husbands of one wife. Even this is hard. As, as pastor, i gotta, I got to preach what it says. Even this is hard. Why? Because there are churches who look at the Greek context, and they say husbands of one wife. Actually, in the Greek, you know what that means? A one-woman man. So some churches say, well, we can ordain men who have been divorced to be deacons as long as they're not practicing polygamy they're just faithful to one woman so it means one woman at a time okay and they and that's how they look at it and that's fine I don't judge any of them but our traditional view doesn't do that our traditional view says the husband of one wife for a life now maybe you're here you're a man you've been divorced and you say well that kind of just nixed me right out of the equation I want you to be, I want you to listen to me. So now if you're a divorced man, you and all the women are on the same page. You just got dumped, right? Are you ready? I don't care if you're a woman, if you're a real one. I, I, I don't care if you are a man who's been divorced. You can do anything in this church that the Lord has gifted you and put on your heart to do. You can serve in any capacity in this church you can teach classes you can help serve children in the back you can work in student ministry and college ministry senior adults you, you prayer ministry you, you can be a part of everything in the church you just can't hold the position of a pastor or a deacon okay it's not that hard it's not that hard we look at we don't look at you less we look at you as equal but we look at you as no longer meeting the qualifications or if you don't do the other things, you wouldn't meet the qualifications. Now, he goes on just like the pastors, and he says, and they should be good managers of their children and their households. For a long time, I have, I've experienced this in the church more than one time, where a deacon would come and say, I probably ought to resign as being a deacon. Why? Because I've got children, and they've lost their minds. Welcome to our world 
You know, this doesn't say a deacon should have perfect children. In fact, they won't have perfect children. You know why? Because they are imperfect people, just like the deacons and the pastors and everybody else. It means a deacon should, his goal, his heartbeat is to raise his children and to lead his family to the Lord and to live for the Lord and to support the church and to be engaged in this spiritual journey. That's his goal. It doesn't mean perfect because we've got deacons. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jordan right over here, Jordan Pam. Jordan's a deacon and they have a little boy. And uh, he's, he's pretty perfect right now. I mean, he poops a lot. Inopportune times. Wakes up a lot. Inopportune time. Kind of imperfect in that. But when he gets about two, the imperfection rises up. And when that happens, you're safe. <laughs> you keep trying to lead him and you're safe. That's not what he's talking about, okay? And, and so he goes on, he finishes it up. He says, for those who served well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith in, that is in Christ Jesus. For a deacon, an ordained, set-apart deacon who serves well, he gains a great name for himself, and he's blessed in boldness in, in, in his faith. I want you to know that translates to everybody. If you are born again, you're a servant, you're saved to serve. If you're serving Jesus, you're ministering, you're, you're, you're loving people, you're helping people. Listen, you gain great boldness in your faith in Jesus, and you gain great respect because you, you are an anomaly. You're a freak of nature. You shouldn't be serving other people. You should be like the rest of us, all about me, myself, and I. And so all of a sudden, we realize that living for Jesus is not just obedient. It's blessed. Now, there's a reason why the bar is set so high in Scripture for the church, for the deacon, for the pastor, for all of us. Because the role of deacon has never been more important than it is today. Because we live in such an unfaithful culture that's brought all of these synthetic expectations about Christianity into the equation. It's like, yeah, Christians are supposed to do this. We're supposed to do that. Great. Show me in Scripture what you're talking about. We're supposed to be loving of people, even if they're this way. Sure we are. But help me understand how condoning and making things right is biblical. We're supposed to be speakers of truth, demonstrators of love. And, and, and that balance of truth and love is very difficult and tangled sometimes. And so it's never been more important than it is today. We live in a world that is confused, and the truth needs to be on display. And that's why it's important for pastors and deacons to live lives on full display, full disclosure, without any hidden agendas or secret sins. And so I want to introduce you to our deacons. Now, let me explain what our deacons do as they come. Yeah, I'm going to give their names, and then while they come, I'm going to tell you something. Here they are, Barry and Lori Collins. Wayne Wood, and y'all can just come down to the front. Cliff and Debbie Lowe, uh, Jim and Jackie, John and Mindy, Ed and Kim, Jordan and Pam, Brian and Andrea, Don and Vicki, and Justin and Megan. So these are our, our, our deacons. These are your deacons. You nominated them, and they were vetted and approved. They serve on a three-year rotation, and then they rotate off. Not all 12 at one time but in groups, okay? And during that three-year 
term of responsibility and service. They meet the needs in the church. They have weekly responsibilities. Somebody calls the church and needs something, goes to the deacons. They kind of open up, close down every week. They come and pray with me before every week at, before service. They often stand near me um, at the exit and the entry, kind of, I'm, I'm, amen, uh, kind of my, my uh, support team. Uh, they pray for you. They pray for me. They, they serve communion to the church. They, they have all these responsibilities, okay? And then in September, you'll have the opportunity to nominate other deacons because three or four of these will rotate off. And we have 10, and we're hoping to go to 12. And so I want these deacons and their wives to know how much I love them, how much I appreciate you guys. Uh, you all mean the world to me. And church, I want you to acknowledge and recognize them by clapping your hands for them because they serve you. And you guys can head back. Thank you so much for coming up here today. Now, here's what's amazing about being a deacon and, and being a pastor and being a part of the corporate church is that God is not the author of confusion. Okay, it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 13, God is not the author of confusion but of peace. And so he does that in the church. He does that for you individually as a Christian, how you can penetrate and make a mark on your world. He does it to us as a church, how we can be the light in a dark world. And what's amazing is, uh, is all of these descriptions, as pinpointed as they are and as well-defined as they are, they're also able to, to move and flex into every environment. Uh, it's not a rigid system. And so this organization for the church that the Holy Spirit inspired men to write is applicable in the African bush or in the American urban center. It can work in a liturgical church or a Pentecostal congregation. There's variations everywhere. Variations everywhere just within Baptist churches. And the Methodists do it different. Presbyterians, another. And Pentecostals, another. And although none of them arguably necessarily wrong in all cases, none of them emphatically right in all cases. It's amazing and, and it's beautiful. The same truth, the same description applies in a, a little church a, a, that meets in a home or a mega church in a big city. It crosses cultures, it reaches through boundaries, and it has carried itself true through 2,000 years of time. And it's important that we are built and based on the truth of God's Word moving forward, not just from the pastoral leadership side down, but from every, that everybody knows what we believe and why we believe it. It makes life so much easier when we understand who we are. And so, as I've said before, I am more of an expositional preacher. I like preaching through books of the Bible. In fact, in November, we're going to start Exodus, and it's going to be awesome, okay? We're going to finish this DNA series, and then we're going to do Missions Emphasis Month, and Missions Emphasis Month is going to be spectacular, really, really cool, and really, really different. I'm excited about it. So when we come to a close of a, a service like this, and it's, it's about deacons, I want you to know something else. More important 
than anything else we do, I want you to know that your church and your pastor and your leadership are evangelistic at, the, at our hearts. What does that mean? It means our desire, as, as, as important as it is for us to have a great biblical structure, our greatest goal is that everybody who ever walks through those doors and sits in an environment called the church, they hear the good news of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? It means that my number one job is not just to tell you about the importance of deacons, it's to tell you this. Are you ready? God absolutely loves you. He loves you right where you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you there. He loves you so much, he came to this earth and he died on a cross to fix all your problems, to save all of your sin, and to adopt you into his family. That's how much he loves you. And it is on this day, maybe you're visiting this church, maybe you've been here many times, and this message had nothing to do with evangelism, but something in this moment, the Holy Spirit has speak, spoken to your heart. He's drawn your attention. I want you to know what he's telling you. He loves you more than you know. He died to save you. And if you will surrender your life to him, he will come into your life, heal all of your brokenness, and radically change your forever and your now through Jesus, his son. So how do you do that? How do you apply that? You simply say, God, I surrender all. I am a mess. And I can't fix my mess. So I give my mess to you today. Take my mess and exchange it for the glorious grace of Jesus. Forgive my sin. Fill me with your spirit. Help me live for you from this day all through eternity. I love you and thank you for hearing the prayer of somebody like me in Jesus' name. And he saves us and he changes everything. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your word of truth. I thank you, God, that sometimes we just get so sideways. We, we get so many false ideas and philosophies. I do it. Everybody does it. But God, I thank you when you provide such clarity through your scripture, which is where we find the truth. God, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about servants and deacons and our places and positions in the church. But God, I thank you more that beyond all that is your love for the pinnacle of your creation, mankind. And that love is not just a word love, it's an action, it's a deed, a deed that took place upon a cross. I pray, God, that every single person here knows you in a real way, but I venture to say that's not true for all. I pray that on this day, God, your Holy Spirit would reach into the depth of their soul, invite them into a relationship real and personal and intimate with you through what you did through Jesus, your son. And Father, I pray that you'll bind all spirits but your Holy Spirit, and they will be able to receive that invitation into your family. And we'll give you praise and glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.